Welcome to Matters After Print, Episode 7, A Conversation with Tabitha Carlos Frost. Saints and Martyrs Behind the honey shadow of a sneeze, on the other side of sunlit particles, over cracked faces, yesterday's light lingers gleaming over your little saints and martyrs. They, unsure of their pure shapes, stand still with bent heads and necks, not felt to nothing as ferns are at dusk, but quietly coughing up the afternoon's dust. They send up prayers with downcast looks, warnings about wanings, how you pressed your skin too thin into books, wilted yourself for nothing, and embroidered your veins into one long tendril, then wound it about your eyes to cover up all that low, sticky yellow light of tobacco and flat cloud. You look like imminent organ failure. Eyes in body bags, all raw and yawning for lavender. At least by now you are well learned in weeping. Scheduled lamentations for weeknight evenings. Practice prostrations, each a fresh mask of clay to adorn your little statuettes. Because other people are quagmires, made from the scent of stale smoke and patched together with damp leaves. But the odour of burnt coffee lingers higher. Thinner notes through thinner air, like the tone of a migraine ringing. Burnt and muddied liquid. None spilled, but stagnant. Brown rivers, never reaching the sea. That was a short extract from the poem Saints and Martyrs, written by Tabitha Carlos Frost, whom I have with me today to discuss her work and her artistic process. This is another episode in a series of interviews entitled Matters After Print, in which I, the general editor of the Horizon magazine, discuss the works contained in the magazine with the talented artists and writers who submitted them. Saints and Martyrs is a short lyric poem that wanders between religious imagery and images of the natural world as it undergoes what appears to be a deep introspective examination. The speaker of the poem addresses the reader directly, capturing the subject of the poem in the subjective personal pronoun you, at once implicating both speaker and reader as the object of the poem's considered, and yet sometimes seemingly cruel, interrogation. There is a consistent denigration of the subject of the poem, yet this denigration is blanketed in the beautiful vocabulary and melodious assonance that is in the poem. The poem begins behind the honey shadow of a sneeze, and tumbles through warnings about wanings and a subject all raw and yawning for lavender. The poem can be found and read in full on page 20 of issue 1 of the Horizon magazine. Saints and Martyrs is a poem that seems to address the insecurity of the human psyche, the vulnerability and destruction of the human body, and the fatiguing impact of human interaction. To begin the show, let's first understand a bit more about the poet and writer, Tabitha Carlos Frost. Would you like to introduce yourself and let the reader know a bit about who you are, your background as a writer, your current situation, um, whatever it is you wish to share? Hi there. Um, Thank you, firstly, for that amazing introduction. That's, I don't know, it made me feel like a a proper writer. Um, (laughs) And I say proper writer because I've only recently just graduated from Edinburgh doing English Mm. and History of Art. So my foray into the writing scene really is is in its infancy um mm. but i so i grew up in suffolk which is in east anglia uh very flat um mm-hmm. very rural not a lot going on but i think only only later have i started to realize that there's a lot more cultural significance to where i grew up because i think probably since a ch- since i was a child i was really interested in the uh, ghost stories of mr james um, I've liked the music of Brian Eno since I've grown up, all of whom I realised were living in the same place that I was, but I didn't really connect that with being a kind of particularly cultural place to grow up. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, for now, what do I do now? Um, I'm currently waiting to apply for masters in creative writing, um, which hopefully will be quite exciting. But yeah, as I mentioned before we started recording, um, most of my writing really isn't poetry based. It's normally fiction or short stories or even occasionally non-fiction in a kind of more critical capacity. 
but yeah <laughs> brilliant yeah i think it's it's funny that i i feel like we all go through this same experience that during our adolescence and when we're growing up uh we're i think we're all just trying to be rebellious and recalcitrant and we we really reject the space that we're in you know we uh we, we find our reasons and excuses for why we, you know, don't appreciate the good in it. And it's only sometimes when we kind of moved away or get older and then come back that we realize the wealth of what was there. I mean, I grew up in London and I, I used to think similar things about London just being this empty place with nothing in it. But um, all these places have so much in them. And, and yeah, East Anglia, um, obviously the University of East Anglia has produced some, you know, the past 50 years like greatest writers musicians a lot of a lot of good yeah, creative energy I comes out of i didn't place. even know that until you know probably a couple of years ago really but um mm. oh god i used to be so jealous of anyone who lived in london as a kid i think <laughs> because we were so close we'd go to london for like i don't know a, a day because you could get on the train and you'd be there in 50 minutes but it still felt so far away and it was this hub of like cultural it was a cultural center and then suffolk just felt like there wasn't much going on but mm. as you said, it's kind of only really in retrospect that I've realised there's been so much stuff that kind of, I don't know, convalesces towards the areas of theory and the areas of fiction that I'm really interested in now. So like the theorist Mark Fisher, I only realised that he chose to move to Suffolk, oh, he, the late theorist, and he lived mm. in Felixstowe, which is a stone's throw away from where I grew up. Um, mm. But it's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Mark Fisher is a brilliant writer. Love his books so much. Um, but I, I didn't know he moved to Suffolk. But I do wonder, because there is such this, like, hub of kind of, like, critical and creative energy, I wonder if it is something to do with the geography of the place or something just, you know, topographical mm, or local to mm. there. I mean, that's probably very mystical. <laughs> I think so. No, but I like accurate. that. Because there's, um, I'm <laughs> super interested in folklore as well, which is something that I'm mm. trying more and more to weave into my writing. I sometimes find it quite difficult because people can sometimes see it as quite outdated. But yeah. I think the kind of increasing popularity in like psychogeography and stuff like that has really refocused people's attention on the land and the landscape and like myths about the land. Um, I mean, Suffolk particularly, I think Brian Eno had an album called Vanishing Land. It basically is being eroded away into the sea. It is slowly disappearing. Um Oh God, I was so fascinated by the story, which well, is true, it's history, of Dunwich. It's up like um, towards, it's almost Norfolk. It's very in between Norfolk and Suffolk. But it's, um, it used to be the biggest port probably in the UK back in, back in the 13th, no, maybe 14th century. Um, and it just got completely washed away by a storm. And it's now like underneath the water, out in the sea. It's no longer there. And it's just so, it's just such a ghostly kind of, I don't know, residual presence in the landscape. Oh, it's just, yeah, I could talk for hours about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting that the changing landscapes, because I remember while I was at Edinburgh, there was this magazine that was dedicated to um, kind of, uh, not travel writing, but um, writing that was focused on places and locations. And someone wrote something about Norwich and it was this, about this man-made river that had been created um, when uh, I think it was coal mining or it was some form of mining. There was this massive boom. So they created this river so that they could transport the uh, minerals out to the cities and the ports. And then the mining community collapsed and then this river has slowly kind of crumbled, similar to the, what you were describing. And this person wrote this fantastic piece about this kind of like erosion of man-made forces by nature. And and as you say, we're, we're kind of having this revitalized look into um literature about the world about the earth uh kind of i guess it's like an offshoot of anthropocene writing is thinking about how we interact with the natural world um but i liked what you said about folk writing as well because you said um that it it might seem slightly outdated uh to some but i think there's this really interesting thing about folklore and uh kind of traditional narrative that it, it really just kind of cycles like back into fashion. It can never really be kind of put out because obviously uh, if you look at postmodernism about 30 or so years ago, you have people like Angela Carter who their literature is just filled with folklore, just absolutely, you know, uh, brimming with it. And then before that in modernism, you had kind of thinkers uh, like Levi Strauss who 
we're thinking about mythemes and all this stuff and it was really big in psychoanalytic stuff i just i think that we as a culture are just going to always be obsessed with folklore so i think it's probably a really good area to write in if anything i would entirely um, agree with you there and that especially that kind of like recycling that kind of it comes back and that kind of uh, we're always haunted by the stories we've been telling for i don't know eons however long we've been telling them but they just come back and kind of move into different relevance Mm, um definitely about how you know especially as you were saying with the anthropocene and this kind of like more ecological minded i think stories and folklore that are kind of embedded in the land are really helping us at the moment to reconsider our own connection to the land and the mm. land that we are actively destroying <laughs> yeah yeah i mean this is this is going to uh kind of relate to a question that i'll ask a bit later about kind of the role of literature nowadays but i think i think that's something that i consider really really important the way in which we use narrative to explain crises and how folklore how that's kind of always been true and that might be part of the reason why we recycle these narratives because they're kind of the same device they're trying to understand or resolve a crisis but we have spoken about so much and we haven't even i can, got I can onto, already tell it's just gonna start racing ahead <laughs> Um, so I think this might be the award for the biggest tangent so oh, quickly, yeah. but uh, I love it. It's brilliant. Um, but yes, so you've already said that um, despite the fact that we published one of your poems, predominantly you are not a poet, you are a fiction writer. But before we get onto that, I kind of want to start with um, kind of the form of the poem that you sent in. I want to begin with this question of poetic form and style, because there was something about saints and martyrs that I found uh really unique in my opinion it was it was how to put it like the most concentrated poem in the magazine and that's not to say it's the shortest there were a handful of poems which were no more than four or so lines however your poem seemed to fill each line to the brim with evocative imagery poetic technique and such a definitive voice to the speaker and all of this while maintaining a consistent and developing um narrative so to speak uh, in fact, I think the short extract um, we started with is the best example of this. You have these lines um, that go, Warnings about wanings, how you pressed your skin too thin into books, wilted yourself for nothing and unbraided your veins into one long tendril, then wound it about your eyes to cover up all that low, sticky, yellow light of tobacco and flat clouds. You look like imminent organ failure. Well, and thank you. This, that, that this, was... <laughs> well, it, I mean, is they're your words, um, but <laughs> the poem is almost relentless in its metaphors. These images are expanded and expanded upon, contorting and evolving. Um, and now, as I say, I know this isn't your definitive style, as you submitted a number of excellent pieces to us. Um, however, could we talk a moment about what inspired this style of the poem? Were there any poets or kind of like schools or styles that inspired you or did this text just come naturally off the spur of an idea well i'm glad you picked up on the image kind of side of things because this was really heavily image based um almost so okay maybe i'll set up originally when i wrote it and it kind of really differed from my normal writing process quite a lot because normally i'm quite like a meticulous planner i love a plan um but this one to be straight came from the kind of tangled mess of images that conjured up in my mind when I was quite hungover. <laughs> um, and I just, it, you know, that kind of hypnagogic stage in between being asleep and awake, you, cause, because you've woken up a bit earlier than you planned and you're a bit hungover and you're not quite ready to surrender yourself to being fully awake yet. And, <laughs> and this came from that basically. And like, all these images just started kind of like rolling in my mind. They weren't very ordered or anything. There's bits and bobs. Um, it's a honey shadow of a sneeze, for instance. It's a really, really personal image that kind of only ever makes sense to me because as a kid, I just had the experience that when I sneezed, I would smell honey. And apparently it's a very small minority of the population have this, but it was a thing that I thought was strange or special. And I was like, whoa, why, why, can, why do I smell this nice floral kind of bees honey scent when I sneeze um and it kind of rolled on from there and all these strange kind of personal images that can seem really nonsensical to someone else and they make full logical sense to me um and yeah it kind of just came from there 
I mean, that's brilliant. So, so yeah, it just, it, I think I finished that question with something like, uh, did it come naturally off the spur of an idea? And it seems like that's the answer. Um, I, for one, uh, I mean, I love that line behind the honey shadow of a sneeze. And you are correct that it is one of the most impenetrable lines in the poem. I mean, I've read this poem countless times now and I, every time I read that line, I think different things about mm. it and, and it's wonderful to hear what the origin of it is. And, it's very interesting, um, the whole origin of the poem, because uh, I think a lot of people, when they read, they're trying to, impose is a strong word, but they're trying to discover a narrative mm. in the text, a logical strand from A to B, which, you know, I, I am uh, very much at fault of doing with most of my readings as well. And it's something that I've tried to do with this text, but I feel the text is very resistant to it. And that a single reading I have is kind of contradicted by other things. And, and it's probably something that we'll get onto later in the conversation. But um, it really, I, I can really see the, the, the energy in which this was written, what you were talking about, that kind of groggy, half awake, half asleep barrage of images that you can, uh, you know, experience. I think I remember um, I once in a very similar state to what you described, woke up and uh, wrote like, three pages of a short story all about a rotten banana peel that I'd left on my bedroom floor <laughs> and and it was the strangest thing I'd written in a very long time it was just full of these crazy wild images that had no kind of central narrative mm. or source to them because it was in the exact same energies you described just waking up and having these like big impressions but it kind of frees up so much extra space for thinking because mm. like you you mm -hmm. kind of naturally just start unpicking these associations like they kind of just I don't know, tumbled over each other and fell out. But I didn't, as you say, I didn't, there was no kind of like, you know, spine to the narrative. There wasn't anything that kind of welded them together once I'd immediately written it. And obviously I went back and edited it, but not, not in a, not in a, a big way. There was tweaks. There was kind of rearranging lines to different, in different orders, mm. but it was fairly yeah. off the cuff, which is yeah, yeah. weird for yeah. me, but fun. I think, I mean, this is interesting. We'll get on to the question of how you write in a second because you just mentioned that you're quite a, ma a meticulous planner. But mm. there is something that's true in that, that there's something about form, planning, even just ideas, to put it in a spacious place, that at, while at one can lead to great creative energy, at one can really kind of structure and channel um, your inspiration and your thoughts, um, always comes at a slight cost, always comes at a slight limitation. And that limitation is normally a productive thing. You know, if you're writing a sonnet, you are given a form to put in your thoughts, that kind of thing. But to free yourself from all of that and just let things fall on the page always creates such a different um, piece, such a different uh, kind of work. So I think it's really interesting that that was kind of the impetus for this poem. It, it's it is going to complicate a lot of the questions I have when I'm trying to unpick what's going on in the poem, but you know, we'll cross those bridges when we get to them. But um, as we said, uh, you are not predominantly a poet, which is surprising considering the skill that this poem demonstrates. Um, but we briefly mentioned that uh, actually in your, um, when you were sending us work to the first edition of uh, Horizon, you submitted a couple pieces um, to us and they're all quite different in style and tone if if i remember correctly alongside the lyric poetry there were two prose pieces i think one was called 28 and a half and involved this brilliant conversation between uh, a a discontented but you know not strictly unsuccessful writer and a small boy who catches her smoking in the bathroom of her friend's party um and then there was another involving this really interesting like mock flaneur character exploring some ancient baths i mean they were like polar opposites of kind of like tone um so in short i mean you demonstrated a wide-ranging talent when it comes to writing so um and this is something that not everyone can do for some there is like a definitive style that your art manifests itself in thus what i wanted to ask you about is your relationship with form um is there a great difference to uh, the content tone and messages between your lyrical poems and your prose? I mean, I feel like you already said there are, but maybe we could go into that a little bit more. And do you think they have different purposes? Do you think poetry and prose, when you're writing them, they're, they're to a different end? 
really interesting questions and also thank you for the kind words really that's <laughs> lovely to hear um but for purpose I think that's really interesting because for me poetry has always been so much more personal there's always mm-hmm. in my view with the poems and the poets that I've liked have been semi-introspective there's always I mean there is a lot of universalism but for me I think when I'm approaching writing prose there's more of a there's normally like a, a, a something motivating it. There's normally kind of like a, an end in sight. It doesn't have to be a conclusion. I don't have to know where the story's going to go. But it's... So say with the 28 and a half, that was one of the first short stories that I've ever written. That was for a creative writing course at Edinburgh. Um, and I knew that I wanted to have this effect at the end where someone who was discontented with their perceived lot in life could re-see it from another perspective and kind of, you know, self-review in this kind of more childlike, naive approach. Um, but it was also really fun to write that one. It was very, very different from what I write now, um, as you said, especially in tone. <clears throat> um, but I think going back to your question about form and the purpose, I would say that prose for me has more of a driving force. There's more of I think it has a kind of slightly, I don't know if this is going to be strange to say, but an ethical imperative sometimes. There's mm-hmm. something, there's some level that I feel that if you commit to reading a full book or, or you know, a larger piece of writing, I like to to have something from it, even if it's a kind of sense that I'm, I've had something shaken or something changed and I'm not sure about what I've read. I don't know, there's more, I, th- I think you have, you enter into more of a contract with your reader in um, prose rather than poetry. I mean, I'd say I'd say I have to agree with you. Um, and it's 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 a topic that isn't new at all. I mean, it's uh, I, I think it's worded different. I loved ethical imperative. I mean, I think that is a really, really good way to put it. And it, it kind of fixes a problem with the usual terminology. I think throughout history, uh, people have normally asked the question. And I mean, this is a long way back. There's a Victorian kind of time like uh, language. They, they, they'd ask the question, must literature be moral? Or what is the moral reasoning of literature? And then obviously you had people who went against that, who were doing like art for art's sake, thinking that there shouldn't be a moral aspect of literature. And as we've progressed from, you know, uh, poorly guided uh, ideas of morality, with the question kind of comes again about, you know, some people ask like the efficacy of a novel. Is it, does it have like purpose? Is it, is it making a difference? And people are still on both sides. Some people think that as you do, that there might be an ethical imperative mm-hmm. um, in novel writing. And other people think that no, the novel is also an art form and, and can be free. But I think the way that you, you phrase it, that you're almost put into this sense of a contract between the reader and the mm-hmm. uh, writer, it, it, it intrinsically gives the novel this, this, this uh aspect that really shapes it really really means that it can impact people it can change their opinion because they go on this kind of narrative journey yeah i Um, would i would say that you're completely right but i would clarify that this kind of the thing that it's not didactic i don't i'm not someone who believes in kind of a novel should teach you something specific there shouldn't be like oh that's the message of the book um like someone who i wrote about a lot recently so ali smith because i did my dissertation on her um I think she definitely has a kind of ethical attitude to her novels, but you couldn't say that any of them has a, you know, she's a very kind of like post postmodern writer. You know, she's, she's kind of, I think the only thing I would say that the lesson that a lot of her work has is this kind of total joy and like aesthetic rejuvenation with fiction and kind of really, you know, it's teaching you to look at the world in a, to use fiction, to open up yourself to the world rather than, what I mentioned in the um in the poem that's featured in the magazine um about the braiding yourself um no sorry pressing yourself too thin into books this kind of you know flattening effect that can happen and I think that I've definitely experienced before when you kind of use something as escapism rather than something that's going to open the world for you mm. yeah it is interesting that and it's 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 an interesting question because it, it where where is the where is the weight placed on that? Is it is it the text or is it how you're reading that 
uh, determines what that experience is, that determines whether you have this, you know, growing experience of literature that you'll find in, say, an Ali Smith novel, or this this thinning that you're talking about in your Mm -hmm. poem, because I'm sure that a single text can make someone feel different ways. So, um, oh, entirely. I mean, like how you said mm -hmm. with the all the images that are in this in in my in my poem that's in the magazine, how you know it's they kind of don't make sense at several points. They make personal sense to different people at different points. Mm-hmm. Um, but there doesn't have to be a prescriptive reading, I don't think. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're, we're almost verging on this this possibly controversial topic of is there a, a damaging and positive way of reading or consuming literature, which I think is a slightly above the pay grade of this <laughs> podcast uh, to question. Um, one final thing before we move on from this is so the not dichotomy is a strong word but the 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 two sides that we presented here was this this idea of you know the novel functioning as something that that for you at least in your fiction writing you have a bit more of kind of purpose this sense of maybe not so much a message but something being expressed and communicated by it while you 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 said poetry was far more personal and you even said that the poets that you uh, um, more often read also wrote in this matter of kind of um, poetry that is personal, that that might even be private. But um, for all of those poets that you read, they all published those texts. So even if the matter of the poem comes across as deeply personal, which, I mean, even your poem, uh, to a great extent, it feels like you are almost invading into a mindset, invading into very personal, intimate thoughts. But then at the end of the day, these works are published, you know, this is in this magazine, and all the poems that you read that made them feel this personal were also chosen to be published. So in a sense, that makes them public as well as personal, which then begs the question are they do they also have this implication that you find in 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 fiction and literature do they also have this sense of uh an impact they must be aware of oh yeah you've said that very 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 lucidly and i would probably agree <laughs> with you hmm. i think to be honest i probably just not thought about it as much to do with poetry because i'm so much more focused on fiction um, is in a kind of craft that I pay attention to. I think I'm not as self-reflective in my poetry, which sounds weird because this is a poem about self-reflection, yeah. but as in my process. And to be really straight with you, like I really didn't see as many of the meanings in it as I now do until I read it out loud to myself, which sounds so strange, but it really kind of like things slotted into place and it was as you were talking about with the kind of public and private, it was this kind of more accessible level of meaning coming up from all these kind of really personal images. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I feel I feel with poetry, that's often the case, actually. This, this idea that you're less self-reflexive, because I, I do the same thing. The amount of times I will write a poem and it is not until the next day that I read it or even far, far later that I look at it, I really realise what I've written, mm. which, I mean, just like you said, it sounds like a really bizarre thing to say, but I think in poetry, often that's the way you kind of just try and like drive stuff out and possibly do it quicker than you can even reason what you're saying. But obviously there is something that led you to these decisions, led you to these word choices. And, you know, it's only with time that you can understand that. And fiction is very different in that respect, because just because it is a larger task and there is a structure that you must create, you know, with poetry, you almost have this freedom, at least if you're writing kind of like free verse lyric poetry, that you can just express. And if those expressions are powerful enough and your use of language is, you know, know, uh, well uh, decided and all these things, it can be good. But with fiction, I mean, unless you're going really avant-garde, you're kind of trying to create some sense of structure. You're trying to create some sense of immersion and a narrative to bring a reader into. So I think it's much harder to do it in that sense of without, you know, the self-reflective thought, because all the decisions are so kind of important and they all kind of uh lead to this this overarching thing um i mean and we've been talking about this for a good while now so i'm feeling like asking the question about your writing process is a bit strange <laughs> but um 
Should we talk about? Uh, I think we got a good idea of the um, more spontaneous poetry writing. So should we talk about the the planning side of your fiction writing? Like, how extensive is it? Do you do you really go in oh, for days, or yes. do you have a loose plan that you kind of develop as you write? God, I think it's probably a hangover from university, but like, I ugh, I love a plan. I had this I had this thing that I would always do when I was writing an essay, which would be to kind of collate all my notes. Um, into one big document, print them out, and like cut them all up, and then restick them together. So I'd have these horrible, really really long essay worms that would be like two meters long, and then I'd have to try and condense that into something that uh, a tutorer would actually bother to mark. Um, and it's something that I still I think I approach quite similarly similarly with my fiction. Um, it's probably usually an idea or or more often probably a question that will start it out. Um, I think definitely the poetry side of things is more image-based. I'll get kind of like an image that will start the ball rolling. But it's definitely much more question-based and kind of a research process. I love researching. I'm still pretty, you know, lost without university. I loved, I love the process of researching and finding out mm-hmm. something to write critically about. Um... So I'll normally kind of go through plotting possible ideas, anything that can kind of tangentially move off from this initial thought. And then it really will come down to like, like proper plots and planning. Like I have so many uh, like documents all on my laptop that have got bits of phrases to use and, but, and like different words like really small tiny things I picked up like a little magpie I'll just be like "Ooh, I want to use that at some point um Mm. and when I'm planning something so I've got the idea and I'm rolling with it I will go back to that mammoth document that has all my like little tidbits in it and we'll kind of refit things and see how they can work together and slot together and normally that will change where the piece is going entirely Mm. I mean, that was definitely one of the most thorough answers we've ever had to <laughs> someone's writing process. That was brilliant. Um, it's it's interesting as well because it's just so amazing the different way that people work. So, for example, I mean, I share your love of research. I share the love of kind of just like searching for knowledge and planning and that kind of thing. You know, I, I never want to leave academia if I can, but um, I don't share your talent for planning at all when it comes to creative writing. I definitely uh, share your magpie-like behavior. I have documents full of tiny little uh, sentences, words and ideas that I think could become something, but I am awful at sitting down and planning anything. Whenever I try and plan, I just end up writing the thing. Yeah, I'll be like, oh, I want to do this, I and then I'm just I wish I had that. I'm, I'm much less. I will, I will plan and plot until the very last moment, and then I'll be like, right, mm. you need to put this down, and you need to do the actual writing part. But mm. sometimes the whole plan will kind of be this loose. It will go from being kind of a skeleton plot to being something that is essentially the piece. But I'll just be like, it's not written yet. But the plotting is kind of. I think the plotting is probably my thought process of how I think through. Hmm. what I'm writing yeah. amazing well I I would love to learn that skill it's something that I really need in my own writing <laughs> practice um, so the last thing before we move on to saints and martyrs and also we could discuss any other works if you want um, is kind of that big dramatic question that we always throw at our writers at this stage which is um, I'd like to talk to you about the place of writing and literature in the modern world. Um, You know, you've already kind of given a little uh, glimpse into this answer with the way you feel about what prose does as opposed to poetry. But um, just writing and literature in general, what do you think its purpose is and how is it important in our like contemporary society? Does it still have a place? Oof, that's a big question. But yes, definitely. I think it definitely has a place. It's super important I think given the world that we live in and how how quick and accessible information can be and you know it can be misguiding information it can be you know rejuvenating information the the process of having this consolidated long interaction with a book or with a longer piece of writing I think is super super important um, cause it really, you get launched into the internal logic of whatever book is, whether it's nonfiction, fiction, poetry, etc. Um, 
And I think it kind of, it opens you up and you become, you know, you're not distracted. You're not flicking through your timeline. It's this immersion into a new way of seeing the world. Um, Mm. And I think that's so important right now, especially given the ecological crisis and being able to see things from other other people's perspectives, but also other things' perspectives. Mm. It's really important. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's, it's important in a very personal manner in the way that you're presenting it and this and this idea of almost the experience is something that we're lacking you know there's mm. these moments of kind of like uh prolonged immersion prolonged focus and and but and also like, also know, in a political sense i think because i don't know i think i think it was ali smith who was talking about literature being an act of empathy oh no yeah. she was talking about puns being an act of empathy it was great um yeah because I mean, her her stuff is filled with puns; they're everywhere. Um, and I think it was James Wood who talked about her use of puns as um, uh, her puns are rooted in like the figurative consolation that they embody. So- sounds like him. Yeah, it's very him. <laughs> because you know, puns—they're basically splitting a meaning apart. They're splitting the words meaning yeah. into different bits, but they're also bringing those bits together. And mm. it's this kind of you know, it's it's an act of connecting. And I think that's what literature does in many ways. It's, it allows you to see from someone else's perspective, you know, mm. it might be someone who is less fortunate than you. It might be someone in a, a country where political turmoil or, you know, it's a d- dangerous place to live. Or it might be from the perspective of, you know, nature that is being impacted by our behaviour on a global scale. Mm, I completely agree. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have a really broad reading habit, if that makes sense, you know, like try and take in as many different um, styles and cultures and origins of literature as possible. I think I remember when I was um, quite young, uh, secondary school, um, I remember reading Shinua Akebe's Things Fall Apart. Mm. And it was the first time I had ever, and and it was, it was amazing because I had this really um, self-reflexive moment where I realized it was the first time I had ever read something that wasn't part of the Western literary canon. Mm. And and it was just this mind-blowing moment where I, I remember at first being kind of like enthralled and, and mystified by these strange metaphors and, and ways of describing things that was just so unusual because they weren't things that were common to Western uh, typical literature. And and I just had this overwhelming experience, which then developed into like this really big questioning of why is this the first time I've read something so different? Um, and yeah, ever since then, I think I think it's really important what, what you were talking about, the way in which it kind of creates this conversation, this connection between yourself and whatever's being presented. Mm. Um, and also those yeah, things think- that are excluded, like both both act, like active political exclusions, but also in the kind of like historical sense, I think literature has got one of the best, like what else can literally bring people who have, you know, I'm currently reading Hilary Mantel's second Wolf Hall novel. So bring up, bringing mm. up the bodies. Um, what other art form can bring someone who has been dead for centuries back to life mm. in such a vibrant tactile way that you can try and place yourself, you know, in their position, see the world as they are seeing it or have seen it. It's magic. It's no. crazy. Yeah, yeah. No, I I completely agree. Um, it's a beautiful thing. That's why we have the magazine. <laughs> we want to we want to continue it. Um, okay. Well, uh, I'd like to go on to the poem then at hand, saints and martyrs. And this is going to be very interesting because now that I know a bit more of the nature and origin of the poem, a lot of the questions I'm asking feel silly. <laughs> or um, I I I you know it's it's one of the amazing things about this interview series for me has been showing how remarkably and consistently I read a poem completely wrong um which I I don't think is a bad thing I think it's quite uh I would I, I would amend that and say there is no wrong reading exactly that's exactly what I was gonna so say you're, was, you're saved was, this time <laughs> yeah I think if only the only wrong thing is to kind of you know say that there is only one reading to a text but it has been brilliant when um sometimes I'll go on a big kind of rant about <laughs> not rant but a big uh, explanation about how I feel about these certain lines and I just come there with oh well I was I was there's nothing to do with what I was I actually just like butterflies and I'm like oh okay but yeah so so regardless I'd like to talk about this poem and I'd like to kind of like pick out a few things and question them so um I want to begin with perhaps what I think is like quite obvious questions but 
ones that I think are nevertheless important. And the first relates to the title of the poem, mm -hmm. which is also found in the verse with the lines, um, yesterday's light lingers gleaming over your little saints and martyrs with the subsequent lines offering many more clues into what this metaphor refers to. Um, but I just wanted to ask you directly, what are the little saints and martyrs in the context of this poem? So you've stumbled upon the part that's probably the least thought over for me, but yeah. that's fine. Um, it was, again, with the images thing, it, I just had this image of, like, I don't know if they're angels or not, but they're, they're kind of, the, the way they stand, little statues, um, hands over their faces or hands turned up towards the sky, kind of figures mm -hmm. of supplication. Yeah. I don't know why they're representing themselves to me there, but then the more I thought about it, the more I thought we have these kind of things. We have these, it's, I mean, it's basic, but like primarily like ide ideological figures, objects or icons that you can put your faith into, you put your focus into things that help you distract yourself from, I don't know, the daily existential ick. <laughs> mm. um, and I just wanted to explore that. So for me, later it became a kind of more more specific look at how 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 the pressing yourself too thinly into books became more of the 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 motive of the poem but yeah that was the initial it was just this image okay so so when it goes on to say um they unsure of their pure shapes stand still with bent heads and necks um and then goes on with a knot furled with nothing um so in relation to this idea of these ideological figures and icons, is it are you presenting this like the fallibility or uh, in, not insecurity, but, you know, the, the lack of a resounding strength in these ideological icons? Definitely, because, I mean, again, as I was saying earlier, definitely only in retrospect, I will amend. <laughs> mm. But there was this there was this definite vulnerability, something. I don't know if you've seen little fir ferns that are in forests. When it gets dark at mm -hmm. night time, they literally kind of curl up into this quite, I don't know, protective little fur. Um, and I just had this image of these, the, the, the curve of the saints' bodies kind of moving down like that um, into this kind of, I don't know, almost as if they were disappearing, mm. um, which I guess interlinks with what you were saying about the vulnerability of them. Hmm. Well, that sets this up quite well because I think that's quite a, an interesting way to start this poem with with um with what you've said about the idea of you know the damage of pressing yourself too thinly into books, the damage of basically consuming information in a certain type of way. That to begin with this overt kind of um demonstration and with beautiful language nonetheless, but this overt demonstration of how structures, things as powerful as saints and martyrs, um can bend and curl and not be so strong as you once thought. Um, and then this leads me on to what I find one of the, one of the most powerful, but also interesting and, and hard to understand aspects of the poem, um, which refers to the relationship between the speaker and the subject in the poem. So, Again, this could be wrong, but my personal reading is that in many ways they are one and the same. You know, technically, technically the speaker of this poem seems to hold an almost third person on the surface omniscient position. But the pointed interrogation between the speaker and the subject pre presents a much more personal relationship between the two, eliding any possibility of objectivity, at least in my reading. So... Could you talk a bit about what's going on here, about this relationship between the speaker and the subject, so the, the way that the poem interacts with this you that it keeps uh, addressing and contacting? Mm. Well, I definitely like your interpretation, and I think I'd probably subscribe to that. I essentially really just dislike saying I in poems, so I mm -hmm. really avoid doing that at all costs, because it makes me feel like I'm 16 and writing really bad poetry in my room again. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I would agree and especially given the context of where this poem came from of that again we were saying like hypnagogic lying in your bed feeling mm. grotty but not knowing whether to do anything this kind of semi out of body looking down you kind of reviewing yourself but you're mm. still obviously bound up with yourself so you're still complicit in whatever kind of 
you know, damning um, views you're having on yourself. But it's there's this separation, this kind of weird self-alienation. Hmm. I think you've described it personally. I was going to, because when you started that and you, you said that it's, you know, mainly because you don't like writing in I, which I understand. I mean, a lot, there's a great aversion to it because this, it just feels almost dogmatic sometimes. Mm. Also, like it feels vulnerable. Like, mm, exactly. Yeah. To, to really attach yourself in that way. Um, but I was going to talk about how making that decision, though, has so many implications to it. But you then went on and described that perfectly about the way in which by positioning yourself as this other um because you know it's it's you know when you write a poem where the you is clearly the speaker the i uh it creates this 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 sense of uh interrogating yourself of um uh kind of it, it always it's depending you know i mean you could maybe write a very lovely poem where you're talking about how much you love you but most of the time it is these things where you're really kind of deconstructing who you are as a person in these interrogative poems um and yeah, I think that uh, it brings up something that I was going to ask a little later, but I might as well ask it now, which is just a small point. And as you know, you said uh, with the um, uh, with the way that this poem was written and the way that it's so based on images and kind of these things that were floating in, there probably isn't an answer to this question. But I was really intrigued by the 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 violence within this poem. Um, and as the poem is so consistently evocative and powerful in its language, never really letting up, it's it's easy to kind of be carried past the violence. And violence is probably much too strong of a word. But, you know, these lines about unbraiding your veins in one long tendril to be wound around the eyes of one who looks like imminent organ failure with eyes like body bags. You know, though it's easy to pass, there is quite a violent reorganization and construction of the subject's body here. Um so though you know uh, i i just wanted to to question if there was any source for this violence or if it was just again something that just came out in the writing just spontaneously mm. I'll, i'd probably go back to the the kind of depersonalization thing that we were talking about yeah. there because i don't know especially when you're in that state i think for me becoming aware of your own body is such a there is a violence to it. There's something mm. weird because you have got this separation. You know that you're an I somewhere. Or you well, you don't know. But, you know, there's this kind of different degrees of you. And having your physical body as being one of them, you know, and bodies can malfunction, you know, when you're ill, when you're feeling, as I was in this poem, <laughs> hungover. Um, you become a lot more aware of all the physiological functions. And it is alienating. And I think it's quite scary. Um, and I think that's probably where that came from. Um, exploring the kind of the inherent violence to inhabiting a body. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think I think it's a thing that comes up in a lot of writers, a lot of famous writers. There's just this intrinsic fear and 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 pain associated with a sudden dramatic awareness of embodiment or a mm. sudden and dramatic awareness of just existing. I mean, that's obviously where the whole kind of existentialism came from is, is, is partially that this, this, this mm. idea of confronting the act of existence. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can, that, that kind of really does answer the question and, and it is, it is a violent thing. And I, I must agree that a lot of the time it is on hungover mornings lying in bed that you think these things. Mm. Uh, on on just to give a contrast to that, I do I can't remember who said this. I think it was either Sartre or Camus, but one of them has this beautiful quote, which I mean, Camus especially, but also Sartre to an extent, of, um, often gets kind of characterized as these very uh, depressed and dark individuals yeah. who see everything as misery. But there is this beautiful beautiful quote that i can't i don't know word for word but it it basically talks about how every once in a while this person is suddenly and miraculously overjoyed with this awareness that they exist because mm. the alternative is not existing and they can just get filled with this glee and i think that's quite a nice uh counter to you know existential crisis no <laughs> this, totally i know, agree with you i think joy. i think Camus was probably more of the uh, the upbeat of the existentialists. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know. Agree. The myth of Sisyphus is totally about being happy while yeah. you push a rock up. Yeah, the like just like yeah. you push that rock, have a good time. Mm. 
I do. I feel bad for the existentialists. I feel like they are some of the most misrepresented writers mm. in in history. You know, <laughs> existentialism is humanism is all talking about it being a theory that makes you live life properly, and, mm. and everyone's just there like, oh, I'm having existential. Everyone's going to forever like, be oh. wearing berries and looking down in coffee shops now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, yeah. Just read read the actual text and give a good pair of ideas of what they are. Um, Okay, so I mean, yeah, I I feel like there was one last thing I wanted to talk to or talk about in this poem, and it's this this sense. Um, well, actually, there's two last things. I'm going to start with something else. The one thing is, uh, why, uh, what what caused this attraction to the two main imagery in this poem, which are kind of the religious imagery and the natural imagery? You know, there's there seems to be this. They kind of uh, roll over each other. The saints and martyrs and the prayer like imagery and then you know the recurrence of lavender and then the final stanza with the quagmires and the sea i think Um, probably sorry to cut in i think probably going back to where i came from in the um that's going to be a very you know self-autobiographical interpretation but um as a kid i was obsessed with i don't know what you'd call earth religions like wicca and all of these kind of much more um embodied in in nature religions um and then became really interested in catholicism when i was probably um in the later part of high school um and seeing the kind of juxtaposition between those two and being so immersed in the natural landscape of where i came from with its quagmires and its marshes and all this kind of you know just tactility of you know getting stuck in the mud um and how they intersected because i mean that there are loads of churches throughout where I live. So I think Ipswich, Ipswich, which is the, the town that was nearest to me, has one of the highest concentration of churches in the UK. There were loads of them, I think, because Cardinal Wolsey used to live there, or he was born there. Um, but I was never religious. Never. Like, not not in a significant way. It's, again, with this approaching them as as a, as interesting topics or things to research, there's this distance from belief but it doesn't mean that i'm less interested in it Mm. no i i i can i can definitely uh understand i mean myself not incredibly religious either and yet it is still there is something so beautiful in the language that is found in religion and the language that is found in nature and i think Mm. i think that's something consistent throughout you know most poetry in the modern world you know you've got the romantics having this kind of you know really getting into the spiritual side of nature and that exploration and then you know throughout poetry the the use of kind of like religion as a starting point for poems that might have nothing to really do with religion you look at some of the racier poems of john dunn or you look at the way that uh, t.s Eliot, for example uses religion though you know they are ostensibly you know related to religion i mean the poems of t.s Eliot are not incredibly religious a lot of the time um mm. so but i think these things are you know really evocative and i like you know you you said it's kind of you know going oh it's just my biography that you know it's like almost a cop out of an answer but that <laughs> that is what it is it's just these are massive parts of our identities you know it might be a, a bit of a western thing but i think you know throughout culture you know, they, these these identifying cornerstones just become the way we want to express you know so things like nature things like religion become quite important to the way we try and communicate any ideas even if they're not explicitly to do with nature or religion um mm. you you mentioned the geography of your own town being um these quagmires and the boggy areas which was the other thing I wanted to talk about. So there seems to be a shift. And obviously this shift is something that I'm kind of imposing with my reading on it. But um, what, what, what looks like the third section of the poem, obviously the poem is one long stanza, but the way that we printed it in the magazine with the graphic design kind of divided it into these three sections, which I find so hard not to think of as stanzas now. But um, in, in, the, in, the, in the final section, which goes, because other people are quagmires, made from the scent of stale smoke and patched together with damp leaves, but the odour of burnt coffee lingers higher, thinner notes through thinner air, like the tone of a migraine ringing, burnt and muddied liquid, none spilled but stagnant, brown rivers never reaching the sea. The speaker turns their gaze from the subject towards what seems to be the subject's interaction with others, 
uh, finally presenting these vague quagmires of other people as the stagnant water that may have caused the wilting and thin pressing of the subject in one reading. Um, I mean, I found this passage really beautiful. Um, and what I find really interesting in this section is it is so evocative, but there is also this oddity within it. The clearest image is this idea of stagnant, infertile, natural kind of landscapes, you know, quagmires and muddied liquid, damp leaves and brown rivers, which by itself is an attractive metaphor for kind of non-productive relationships with others. But within this passage, there are these brief but captivating evocations of a far more personal and human scene. You know, the scent of stale smoke and the lingering odor of burnt coffee. And these things seem to fundamentally attach this kind of larger, profound commentary on human relationships to a singular domestic image, an overwhelming sensory moment. And overall, it creates an incredibly powerful finish to the poem, you know, one that reinscribes the lines that precede it, kind of altering the relationship of the speaker to the subject. I mean, at least that's how I came to read it. Um, and I was just wondering if there's anything to be said there about how this final third of the poem seems quite different to the rest of it. It seems to interact differently with the rest of it. Uh, well, I'd, I'd agree with you. I think that this last part came as more... To tell you the truth, I wrote this last part at a different time. Ah, uh, I mean, it comes across. From the Because, does. yeah, so from... So Adorn Your Little Statuettes was the last part I wrote, I think, on that actual day. Um, I... I remember less well when I wrote the second part, but I know I I felt that it was a continuation of the first part rather than a separate piece. This was completely, you know, the logic was the same. But it definitely felt more like a kind of a roving eye, something that was moving in the way that I was probably kind of semi-waking up at some point, you know, and deciding, right, I'm going to go out of, getting out of the bed, but you're also going to go out into the world. But then this, I don't know, kind of, turning back because for me the the lines because other people are quagmires made from the scent of stale smoke and patched together with damp leaves kind of stands together on its own and the the break point with that last bit of the but the odor of coffee burnt coffee lingers higher was i think much more emotional than the rest of the poem to be honest um much more kind of bound up with my kind of experiences of anxiety things that you know feel when that, that kind of like as we were saying with the existential things that kind of overwhelming apparentness of inhabiting the world and that kind of like notes through thinner air migraine ringing it was all this quite like i wanted a kind of a, a crescendo if you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean i Everything you said really, really comes through in a reading of it. Um, it's interesting that it was written at a different point, but these the, the way you feel about it and kind of what you think it says, I really, really think that comes through. It, it's. I know that you know it is a continuation from the, the first thing, and I shouldn't talk about it like two different sections, but they have such a different sense of power in the way they present language and the way they convey kind of what's going on you know it in 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 the in the the first kind of part it it it's this really powerful as i said kind of relentless um chain of images that are bound together in this kind of like thought and relationship between the the speaker and the subject which is one of the same and and if you're just kind of really hit by it and just overwhelmed and it's done with just beautiful assonance and images but then this 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 final part feels slightly slower it feels a bit more a kind of personal a bit more specific and and i think what you were describing about kind of the odor of the coffee and what that relates to i mean really kind of sums it up and it really explains that ending um so yeah i just i love that section um boring question to follow on from what was a very brilliant answer but uh the last two lines, none spilled but stagnant, brown rivers never reaching the sea, obviously comes across really pessimistic, um, kind of uh, almost fatalistic mm. in 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 a sense of, I don't know, abandonment and there's nothing to be done. And is that how you feel the poem concludes? 
I would say from the position that I was writing from, yes. But again, there is, I think, with that second part, the kind of more self-awareness of the anxiety and the kind of, you know, that never reaching the full potential kind of feeling, things that have been stopped. Um, and a kind of... Because it's not like there was ever any faith in the, the, the religious figures that we see at the beginning of the poem anyway. But a kind of reiteration that you know, there's a, there's a finiteness. And as you say, a kind of, um, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's a bit depressing maybe. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I, I, this is going to sound strange because anxiety is a terrible thing and it's very hard thing to deal with for a lot of people, but this poem so perfectly kind of encapsulates the anxiety of living and does so so effectively and what you just said there about that it was that way from the start with the the saints and martyrs figures at the beginning they are fallible they are not strong things you can rely upon they bend they waver they fold and it comes through the whole way and it's you know it's not a pleasant image and obviously it's it's something that most people try to to work through but i think that just this direct confrontation of it and this way of turning it into such evocative and such thoughtful and profound language is is just fantastic. It's just really powerful as a poem and it, it takes what can be quite a frightening and isolating experience and emotion and turns it into something which, you know, going back to what we were saying a while ago about whether poetry has this aspect that prose often has of being something that maybe guides a reader or, or, or suggests something to a reader. I think there is this in this poem. I think this poem is something that can allow someone to identify what can often feel like a very isolating experience. And I think that might be one of the most important things in certain lyric poetries is the sharing of, of extreme experience that we often think we're going through on our own. No, totally, I'd agree. I think empathy is at the heart of a lot of a lot of this and just that kind of sense of connection. Mm, and, I mean, I think it does so brilliantly. Thank you. Um, sorry. Um, so before we draw this interview to an end, um, we normally kind of in this section talk about, you know, what you're working on, any literary project goals or future plans at the moment, which you can do, but you can also, just because you are predominantly a fiction writer rather than a poet you could just randomly talk about anything you've written that you want but if you don't want that pressure feel free to just talk about any literary project goals or future plans you have at the moment oh well um what am i doing at the moment um so as i mentioned at the beginning i've just finished applying for some masters because yeah again like you i want to get back into academia as soon as possible um but what have i done most recently um, I recently finished, it was actually a Christmas present for my mum, a ghost story. And it was my mm. first ghost story I've ever written. And it was so much fun. It was mm. great. I mean, you, you mentioned Mr. James uh, mm. quite early in the interviews. And so, I mean, he's brilliant writer. His ghost stories are such a joy to read. So, I mean, that sounds very fun. That sounds exciting. So is that the most recent thing you've, you've written? Yeah, that was the most recent. Um, and probably directly inspired by Mr. James. Probably mm. specifically, um, I don't know if you've read it, but um, A Warning to the Curious. Mm, the no, the kind of, um, it's it's one that's based around this kind of process of excavation and mm. um, the kind of, the, the dangers of exhuming something that might not, it should not have been exhumed. Um, mm. And I kind of took that idea and moved it to my new surroundings. So I recently moved to London, specifically Deptford in South East London, which is right on the River Thames. It's in this kind of, there's a weird continuity between Suffolk and the kind of the mud and the the quagmires. And then also walking around my local area now where there's Mm. mudlarkers and people who are like, you know, going sifting through the mud for different historical items. Mm. Um, So it's using that basically as a jumping point. um, And it centers on the kind of uh, palimpsestic nature of the urban environment. Because everything yeah. here is so built up. I mean, it's layer yeah. upon layer of different times, different pieces of history um, in a way that you don't see quite as clearly in rural areas. Um, so, yeah, it's just just explored that and then added a bit of a bit of a ghosty vibe as well. 
Cool. I mean, well, that sounds really amazing. Um, I mean, you you have a website where you put most of your work up. So um, would you like to share that to let people know where they can find your work? And is your ghost story up there? Or uh, is yes, it just... yes, it should be just on there. I uploaded it, I think, last week. Uh, it's called The Bellamine Jug for anyone who's interested. Very cool. And uh, what's the website? Um, I think the website, it's on my Instagram, which is tabby underscore CF. Mm-hmm. Um, but my website is uh, tabithacarlisfrost.cargosite.com. Okay, brilliant. Well, we will put both your Instagram and uh, your website in the description of this episode so that people can find your work if they want to read it i mean i've read quite a few pieces off your site now and they are very very good so i would definitely recommend uh for anyone to read it especially uh readers of the horizon magazine who have only encountered your uh poetry so far um but yeah uh is there anything else you would like to say uh no just thank you for inviting me on this has been great no no it's fine it was wonderful chatting with you um it was an absolute pleasure to discuss your work and you know, get inside uh, your mind as a writer and what motivates you and drives you. Thank you. So to end this show, we will now have a short reading from a piece of your work. So thank you all for listening and see you next time. I let my strained eyes refocus slowly and attempted long range vision. It was only then that I saw that there was someone else on the foreshore, quite a way off, a hundred yards or so, down towards the very end of the old jetties. I had not seen them at first because, like me, they were crouching down and hidden under the shadow of the towering dockyard timbers. I squinted. The weak sunlight had done nothing to alleviate the dimness of the sea mist, which was still stubbornly holding on to the morning, despite an hour or so having passed since dawn. Now, I couldn't tell if it was merely due to the poor visibility, or my own imperfect vision, but the figure seemed preternaturally dark, as if they themselves had had a fall and had been soaked in the inky charcoal of the mud. I put up a hand in a tentative wave, but withdrew it after a moment or two, when my neighbour made no gesture back. I could not tell you exactly what it was about the crouching figure. Fellow mudlarks were routinely seen in this low position when excavating a find there was something about it which set a horrible apprehension in motion within me. The edges of the figure, who really was more silhouette than portrait, seemed ill-defined, but more so than my marginally impaired vision could claim any responsibility for. It seemed that the outline, which should have been sharp considering its relative darkness to the pale grey of the beach, was instead shifting ever so slightly, as if it had yet to coalesce into something more solid. Matters After Print is a series of interviews affiliated with The Horizon magazine, hosted and produced by Benjamin Wolf. Thank you for listening.